All right, guys, so if you listen to this podcast, you're probably someone that wants to be productive, to get stuff done, and aspire to be a top performer in any aspect of your life. I discovered Magic Mind, which are these green shots, and I'm gonna show you two ingredients that are really stood out to me. Number one is matcha, which contains a crazy amount of antioxidants and also caffeine, but it doesn't give you the crash that normal coffee would. And the second one is lion's mane's mushroom, which is a nootropic, it helps reduce anxiety, inflammation, helps with learning and memory in general. And what I love about the Magic Mind is that you're not replacing your morning coffee, which we all look forward to on a morning basis, but you're able to replace that third and fourth and fifth coffee that you might not necessarily need. And it's actually hurting you in many ways in terms of your productivity and your energy levels. So if you guys want to be more productive without the jitters or the crash, I highly recommend you guys to check out Magic Mind. They reached out with an exclusive offer for our listeners where you can go to magicmind.co slash growthminds or you can use the discount code GROWTHMINDS20. That's GROWTHMINDS20. And you can get 20% off your subscription. All right, on to the episode. What's up, guys? Really grateful you guys are listening to the pod. I would love it if you could take just five seconds to leave a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you might be listening to this. It really goes a long way to spread the message which would allow me to get better guests to add more value to your life. And if you're one of the special people that have helped spread the word on this podcast, I am deeply appreciative of your support. Enjoy the episode. When people lie, they lie. It's, their lie sounds like a story. It's got a beginning, middle, and an end. Because liars think, I need to tell you a story for it to make sense. Truthful people, when people tell the truth... Alrighty, Evie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Excited to have you. Thank you for having me, Sean. Yeah, I, I um, obviously I know about your story, and I'm so excited for people to to hear about you know the the story that you've gone. It's really one of the most fascinating stories that I've heard around the transition that you've had. So you you started working with the NYPD, and you transitioned into the U.S. Secret Service agent, uh, where you were protecting former U.S. presidents. And um, I guess I would love to dig into initially like how you got into the NYPD and where that transition went into NYPD into working in one of the top protection divisions uh, probably around the world. So actually, when I graduated college, I got a I got a job doing working for a big insurance company, a great company, um, AIG. And much respect to AIG. Well, my job was, it was one of my first jobs out of college and it was underwriting and accounting. Nothing really in my, uh, you know, nothing really pertained to what I studied. But I remember taking the train and going to the job and it was a traditional job working out of a cubicle. And it was very difficult for me to kind of wrap my, my mind around. And I remember sitting on the subway actually at that time, taking the subway, the train into 
uh, work, which was all the way downtown by Wall Street. And I remember thinking, I, I don't, I can't do this. And I, I, I remember the, the subway doors opening. And as I looked out, I saw this police officer. And this was some time ago. And he's leaning on the, the, the rails there by the subway. And his belly's hanging out. And he's just leaning back there. And I thought to myself, I can do that. <laughs> and so, you know, and I always had this draw into being of service and helping people. So that night I called 212 Recruit, which was the, the police phone number for recruitment. Hmm. I said, hi, I, I, I want to be a police officer. How do I, what do I do? And the guy on the phone said, well, you know, you're in luck. The police exam is in a week or next week. Come take it. So he's like, what's your name? I give him my name. He said, this is where you're going to go. And you're going to take your police test. And I literally just rolled in the following week, sat down, didn't know anything from anything. And I took my police test. What's in the test? And that like, started my journey. I didn't. I, it was actually, it was like some type of, it's like their intake process. So I didn't know what to expect. I had no idea. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of literature out there for stuff like this. So I really went in on the blind hmm. and I took it. Thankfully, I had passed. Um, the written exam. And then after that follows a series of testing, you know, testing that the NYPD does to see if you make it through their process. So I began that process. I made it and I was offered an opportunity to be a cadet. So I went through that recruitment process. But as I had done that, when I had finished college, I also just blasted out my resumes to everybody and anybody. And I remember thinking, someone's going to hire me. And one of the agencies that I blasted out to happened to also be in the Secret Service, which is ironic because it was all in the space of law enforcement. Wow. So I get into the NYPD. Secret Service starts hitting me up. I start getting letters from them. And then I begin that process. And that would that took about a year. And it's a very lengthy process. Obviously, it's a highly coveted job. So mm. you do interviews, quite a few interviews. You do um, physical checks to make sure you're physically capable of the doing the job, those types of jobs that you must be physically capable, you must be right. able to perform. It's not just about having the mental capacity, but the physical capacity. And then there's polygraph testing, a background, you know, investigations, because a lot of people, and I think the data actually says about 75% of people either lie or exaggerate on their resumes. So it's a really important 75. thing for them to check the veracity of what you write, whether you're being truthful or not. And so that began my journey from pretty much college to NYPD to U.S. Secret Service. And you just, it's also, I think a lot of things that helped me go along or get into this space, into a highly coveted agency is I did speak multiple languages. I always loved languages. So I spoke multiple languages and I had worked for a congresswoman at the time for two years for free, mm. for free. And I always knew I'm investing in myself. I'm investing in myself. Whereas a lot of individuals around me, you know, were very money focused. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I was always self-investment focused. And I knew I'm building myself. I'm building myself and I'm making myself look unique so that when I go out there into the world, my resume will stand out compared to other people's res resumes because mm. it's not just enough to get good grades anymore. Or even then, it, your, good grades are just not enough, right? You need, it's what, what makes you shine or what's going to cause, what's going to make somebody look at you and say, hmm, this person has something unique mm. and I think I want it. And why do you think learning, uh, having multiple, what languages 
So you speak other than English? So Greek was actually my first language. I didn't learn. I learned English later. My parents were、uh. immigrants, and so they didn't speak much English. So I learned Greek at home, and then through school as a young kid, I learned English,、yeah. and then I followed with Italian, French, Spanish, and those are Latin-based languages. So、mm. what's wonderful with those, if you learn one, they're kind of brother-sister languages. You can pick up on the other ones, and then. After that, I learned Arabic, and Arabic was really post nine eleven, where because of where we were in the world, and because of the work I did, and at that time I was in the U.S. Secret Service,、hmm. I knew it would be helpful to the agency for me to learn that language. Wow! And are you like conversational at this point in Arabic? It varies. It flows. If you, you know what's interesting with foreign languages, if you don't use them, they they weaken. So.、Hmm. It depends. So sometimes I'm strong in one if I'm using one, and then the other one weakens. And it's like playing a basketball or any other sport. The more you、yeah. practice, the better you play. So、right. sometimes there, it's kind of like a yo-yo effect: up, down, up, down. Yeah, it also depends what alcohol, what liquor you're、uh, you're consuming at a certain night, right? All of a sudden you're speaking Chinese or you're speaking, you know, Russian, and all of a sudden, yeah, I, I speak um, um, well. I guess for you, like learning Portuguese would be quite easy as well because it's it's all part of that. Latin. I know、family. a couple of words because I actually studied a little bit in Portu-、uh, Portugal, but it is a different language. Some words、yeah. are similar. Do you speak it, Sean? Portuguese. I, sp- I speak more my Sp- Spanish. My girlfriend is、uh, Argentinian, but she understands like basically everything、yeah. when people are talking to us here in, in Brazil. And I, I would imagine it'd be the same for you. Like you would just be able to pick up most of the words that they're speaking.、Uh, so that's it's yeah, it's it's pretty pretty cool that. So you speak six languages then? Yes, different proficiencies for each. Gotcha. And what what do you think attracted you to getting into the NYPD in the first place? I mean, I understand the current job that you had at, in AIG wasn't the most attractive thing that you wanted to do that you set out for yourself. But do you think there's something about you that attracted you to being in the NYPD? Because it's not necessarily the Path that everybody tries to go to, especially when it's because it's such a male-dominating、um, workload, you know, in terms of the career itself. So, what do you think it, it was about your experiences, whether as a child or just growing up, that really pushed you to enter that field? I grew up in a very high-crime environment. I was born and raised in New York City. I was actually born in Harlem, and my family lived in Washington Heights area, which was very high crime. It was a very heavy immigrant area. And we also lived in low-income housing, which is government-subsidized housing or city-subsidized housing. And so, at that time, you didn't see a lot of police vehicles there. There's a lot of drugs, a lot of crime, and those were neighborhoods that were kind of left on their own. And、mm. I grew up with—I never played outside because it was unsafe.、Um, it was just hurry up, go inside the house. The TV was my escape, honestly. So. I think it comes from that you get tired of being told "be afraid," "don't do this," "don't do that." It's dangerous outside, and at some point you either you either surrender to the fear and you become more afraid, or you rebel against it. And I believe for me, I just began to rebel. I, I got tired of being told "you can't," "you can't," "you can't," and you you hit a point where you I wanted to be able to take care of myself. And then also, when you see people around you being highly victimized, it's a very hard thing to watch. And I think intuitively, without me realizing it, that's what led me into law enforcement. Now, as far as NYPD at that time be, being very in law enforcement in general, being very 
you know, heavily dominated by men, that never once crossed my mind. I, I never thought about it. I didn't care. I, I really mm. never even thought about it. I wasn't, although I grew up with parents who were immigrants and there's cultural things there, they never told me, don't do this because you're a woman. I will say that. My, even my father, my, my father never told me, you're a woman, you can't do this. I never once heard that. Wow. And so I think that played a huge role in my mindset. So I also grew, grew up learning about Greek mythology and the culture I came from. There were a lot of warriors and fighting. And so I always saw myself, oh, those are my ancestors and I'm like that. So when mm. you think of King Leonidas, um, from Sparta, and when you think of Achilles, and you think of these these historical figures who really just left an imprint throughout history, I I guess I saw myself in that way. I never thought, oh, they're men, and I'm a I'm a you know I'm just a woman. Never. And I think perhaps that ignorance that I grew up with is what helped me because it never caused me to pause. I, I was always like, well, why not? Why can't mm. I? I'm very capable. Yeah. And so that's, yeah. I think, where mindset really plays a role because we tend to kill our dreams. We always think other pe people kill it for us. No, we kill it first. We're the, we're the biggest dream, dream killers because no, nobody can really kill your dreams unless you allow them. So it always comes from you. Hmm. Yeah. You say ignorance, but I guess it's rather, it's more that you just didn't put a ceiling on yourself. There wasn't the limiting belief that probably most majority of the people have growing up. It's, it's, it was, you just didn't place that limit on yourself at the end of the day. It wasn't even in my sphere. Hmm. It wasn't even in my sphere. It's not thinking I, nothing I gave a thought to. I never thought that there's nothing. I, I always thought my mindset was I'm capable of anything I want to do. Now, mm. whether I do it or not is a whole other story, but I was never going to be the one who said no. No would come from somewhere else, but never from me. Right. And even sometimes when I hear, when somebody says no to me, I don't hear no. I hear not yet. Powerful. Yeah. And that's what allowed you to start in the NYPD and, and, you know, get to the Secret Service. And now, you know, at, at that point of your career, uh, transition from, you know, NYPD to now serving the most, one of the most pe powerful people in the world. What was that mindset shift like? You know, you were in NYPD, the focus was around protecting everyday consumers. And it, and when you got into the Secret Service Agency in the, uh, what, what's the division called? I, I don't want to keep like, no, no, that's keep, okay. So yeah. NYPD, you're correct. NYPD deals with the protection of civilians, right? You're, you're there to serve society. And actually policing, when we look at policing, the history of policing, private police came first. And so historically, people who had money could pay to have police. That's how it started. And people looked around, certain people looked around at the time and said, this isn't fair. What about the average person? And so that's what came, what gave birth to public policing. Public policing wasn't, wasn't a thing. Hmm. Policing was for people who had wealth. Wealthy people could pay for security. Everybody else, too bad. So we have the, the emergence of public policing, which is now for everybody, right? No matter who you are, no matter how much you, you make, you have access to safety and security. That's the idea. So when you move into an agency like the U.S. Secret Service, now you're moving into onto a federal level. 
So it's a much smaller agency. If you look at NYPD, you're looking about between anywhere between 35,000 to 40,000 officers. It fluctuates. U.S. Secret Service, you're looking at a couple of thousand special agents, and that's mm. it. So you really, it's a really elite organization. It's actually harder to get into the service than it is to get into Harvard or any one of the other Ivy League schools. It's a very difficult place because a lot of people look at that job and think, wow, that's that's a place I'd like to go to just because of the the mindset, the, the access, what you're doing. And so the agency is a dual mission agency. You're not just protecting the president and you're not there to be what I call a meat shield. You're not just there to jump in front of a bullet and call it a day. It's a very, it's about mindset, it's about proactiveness, and it's about strategy and skill set. So first, yes, they do protection for the current president, former presidents, current first lady, former first ladies, and then they do also foreign heads of state. So when a foreign head of state, let's say the prime minister of the UK comes and visits the US, they get secret service protection. The Mm. idea is we don't want any foreign heads of state getting assassinated on US soil. No good. So we want to protect all high-value targets, no matter who they are when they're here in the U.S. That's protection. But the other mission of the agency, and again, it's not commonly really known, is that they have an investigative branch. So you work cases. I had my own caseload. So you work as a criminal investigator. The jurisdiction of the U.S. Secret Service is fraud, counterfeit money, bank fraud, credit card fraud, institution fraud. Scams, a lot of the scams that happen online, which are blowing up today, Yeah, U.S. Secret Service has a task force. It was one of the first agencies to launch a premier task, for- task force. It was called the Electronic Crimes Task Force because they saw this, this emergence of, of crime and fraud happening through online, through mm. devices. And so we work those cases. So it, it is a dual mission agency. It's very unique because you're doing, you've got the best of both worlds, protection, and serving and protecting others, but you don't, you're not protecting the person, you're protecting the idea. It's not, you're not protecting the president, you're protecting the office of the presidency and what that symbolizes. Mm. So there's something bigger there. It's not just, hey, stand here. And then even when you, when you put together the layers of security that you do, it's about being technical. It's about intelligence. It's about putting a plan together 90% of protection is all the preparation you do beforehand. And you build layer upon layer upon layer so that the threat never makes it to the person you're protecting. Now, if mm. they break through all those letter, layers, and at that point, it's, you're between them and your protectee, it's a problem. It means you failed in some way. That's true protection. Well, and what is the process like for you to go into, like, I, I don't know how many years you were spending in each of the divisions, but I would imagine it went from NYPD to Secret Service. But then within that organization itself, you also had to climb up the rankings in order to be in charge of serving and protecting the uh, former US presidents. What is the level of training and number of years involved in order to go from entering the Secret Service to being in one of the highest positions, um, I guess, serving in that organization? So if you're talking about training specifically, you don't get the job until you pass training. They give you a conditional offer of employment. So just because they offer to send you to training doesn't mean you're going to go through. Um, Do they invest in people and do they want to see them go through the academy and be successful? Yes. But there are plenty of people where if you can't can't deliver, you can't perform, you don't get the job. 
So there's two academies. One is Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, and that's the agency where all special agents for the federal government go. You have to go there, pass that training. Then the second part of training is going to the U.S. Secret Service Academy itself, and then going through that process. And that academy is specific to the U.S. Secret Service. So you actually have to pass two academies. Now, at that point, when you get on, they'll give you, you have your caseload. You're automatically an investigator, so you have to investigate, start working cases, investigating. And you, you, you function as a law enforcement agency, search warrants, arrest warrants, all of that. And then with protection, they begin to put you out to help in doing protection. You're not doing it on a full-time basis, but they're putting you out to expose you to it. After a number of years, then you can apply to go to a detail, they call it, full-time. Now, the public always thinks every Secret Service agent goes to the president, the president of the United States. It is false. Only a small number of agents actually make it to the president of the United States. It is actually something you have to put in for after you've spent maybe several years as a special agent. You put in for it, you try out, then if you're selected, then they send you to another academy. It's an internal academy, and you have to pass that. And there's actually a small portion of agents that actually make it to the president. Other agents will go to a vice president, or they'll go to a former detail, because former presidents, they get protection for life. So you may go to a former president, or you may go into one of the different divisions that the Secret Service has. So, for example, there's an intelligence branch, which you can go in there. So there's a lot of different places you can go to. Of course, the premier thing or the thing that, well, I don't want to say most agents want it because you have to want it because sometimes the lifestyle and the intensity and the pressure is not for everybody because your life becomes, you know, their life. You live, eat, and breathe the president president of the United States. So at the time I had President Barack Obama, if he's going to Hawaii every Christmas and New Year's, guess where I'm spending my Christmas and New Year's? Hawaii. Mm. So the lifestyle is not conducive. It is not your life. It is your life revolving around their life. So you miss all the holidays, all the birthdays, all everything. And you have to be okay with that. Not everybody is. And how many years did you were you putting in that lifestyle or 13, the 13, the full number of years I probably stayed. Wow. And I guess like, was it 13 years where you didn't really get to celebrate your birthday and have proper vacations? And is that just the norm? You could plan your vacation, but it would be planned during a time when they told you it was okay to plan it. There were, you know, there were times where they would block off and say, nobody can take vacation during this window. So that existed because that was the mission of the agency. Here's the thing. The agency is not about the self. Whereas I think today the tone very much is me, me, me. There's nothing Mm. wrong with it, but we're a very identity-based culture, especially in the West, especially in the United States. Agencies like this look for a mindset that is more communal. We, we, we. So what you do is in service of others. So you have to really be dedicated to that. So even as I say this, I didn't care that I missed Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. Some other people might. I didn't. I had a wonderful career and I was serving my country and I was protecting. So for me, hands down, that's the best. Those were the best Christmases and uh, New Year's. I'm spending my Christmas with the president of the United States or Mm. around in proximity to people like that. That's how I saw it. Now, some other people would see it differently. I'm you're taking me away from me. And so 
these types of jobs, they, they entice a certain type of person. Yeah. So it, it's not for everyone. No, yeah. No, definitely not. <laughs> and they filter you up for, for the right reasons. Um, and when it comes to privacy, you know, when for the 13 years that you were serving, I, I mean, at, at that point, like, is there some sort of security breach if you were to publicize that you're in charge of protecting the U.S. president at that time? Because I, the, I guess I could see that as someone trying to perhaps, you know, approach you or get into your personal social life because they can get closer to the president. Like, did not a lot of people know what you were actually doing? And did most people not know that you were serving and protecting the president for the first, you know, 13 years that you were actually performing that role? I think it's not a secret job. So it's not like when you work for the Central Intelligence Agency where, you know, in that agency, they definitely want you to be a bit more quiet with your your status because you're, you're, you're working in the space of espionage. You're trying to flip people. You're trying to turn people, especially foreign assets. Um, so because you're dealing in that international space, it's much more delicate. With mm. the Secret Service, it, it's not that it was secret. It was known if you were an agent. So for myself, people knew I was a special agent, but I did not share what I did or where I went, or what I was doing. You, you knew, you, you used common sense not to share information. So I wouldn't say, hey, I'm going here with the president because for the obvious reasons. Yeah. You don't share that stuff. So you, you learn the tone of what you should or should not share. So me person, personally, I really didn't share anything public mm. while I was in that position. That's what I chose. So it's not secret in a sense, but what you hold quiet is what you're doing, where you're going, and you, you protect those things. But also the president is a very public person. So if the White House announces, hey, the president's going to, as we saw with this current president, to the Ukraine, now they kept it quiet for the initial visit. But afterward, everybody found out he went. Mm. Sometimes they'll publicize that the president is going to the UK. And people know. It depends. They'll do a, a threat assessment of what's, you know, what's going on with that specific country. Is there a threat? Should be concerned some countries have a higher threat. Some countries have a lower threat. Some countries are our allies. Some countries we public, publicly go in. Some countries we have to sneak in quietly. So it all, it all depends. So you have to use a level of common sense of what is you, you should or should not say. Hmm. And, and the agency helps guide that. You know, they yeah. let you know. Um, zip it. Yeah. Um you know that transition that you made from, let's say, if you were to look back at yourself serving as NYPD all the way up to serving the most powerful person in the world, what do you think are the differences in the skills that you've had to acquire, whether that's like hard skills or perhaps physical traits or mental traits, characteristics that you've had to either learn completely or accelerate in order to perform at the highest level. What do you think those are or those were? I'll, I'll tell you, there is a difference between being in that space and then being in civilian world. Because after I left the service and began working in TV and news and media, yeah. um, covering national security and crime, um, I had to transition from working with a certain type of person, which they were special agents and people within the White House, to civilians, to the everyday individuals. 
I will say that when you are in that space, the space that I came from, there's a much more resilient mindset. Mm. Whereas you don't get phased by things because you're trained for when things break bad, you respond. So you don't get flustered. There's less drama around you because even though there's drama around you, you don't absorb that drama. So there's a, a truly resilient mindset. And the other thing that I really think is, is fascinating is you are able to think through crisis. Whereas the majority of people, because you don't have that training and exposure, people struggle with crisis. They get very emotional based. They go into very, uh, uh, they kind of go in within. Whereas when you're in that space, you look at the collective mission. What is my goal? What is my output? Where am I looking to go? And you're less distracted by the noise or people around you. You're less impacted by it. So you work with people who move through problems very efficiently. And you can see a difference between that culture and then the culture that I stepped into, which is the civilian world, where you'll see people getting stuck. And it's not to take any, it's not to blame anybody because you've not had that training and exposure. Society today tells you stay away from stress, stay away from stress. Stress is bad. Ooh, adversity is bad. But training is designed to put stress on you. The more stress you expose yourself to, the better you become at problem solving and moving and throwing, flowing through problems. But if you spend your whole time, your whole life, avoiding conflict, avoiding stress, avoiding, 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 one, it's exhausting. Two, it's actually more stressful because it's chronic, because you're actually putting more energy and trying to endure really bad situations. And when you can deal with a problem, you become a better problem solver. Yeah. So I came from a space where Problems are good. You work through them. That's resilience. Resilience mm. isn't a, a mindset. Think this and you'll be strong. It's garbage. You must do. To be resilient, you actually must actively do things that make you resilient, that add to you. But thinking something, thinking myself strong and actually being strong are two completely different things. So as someone that was chronically faced with these incredibly what most people would think stressful situations did you receive that level of training where you were just able to completely shift your mindset where you don't really feel that stress emotionally mentally or did you feel it and you felt the fear you felt the stress that come came about but you were just trained to feel it but let it go or were you able to get to that level where you don't even feel it at this point where you can just completely move on, think rationally and not have that emotional um, charge that most people would have. So you do eventually phase that out. It does become phased out. So the things that would stress out the average person, the more you do it, the less you feel it. So you do get to that point where you don't feel that as much. But again, it's practice. It's not mm. like the super power human strength that you have. It's it's more of, it is a training, but training is only a window. To perform, you must keep doing it. You can go to training. Training is a window of time, and then that passes. So it's about continually working on it. It's a habit that you create. Now, what makes a difference is who's around you. You know, and when I, I work with people, sometimes I do consulting, and I deal with people who say, you know, my business, and we're, we're struggling, and everybody's this way, or, or people... People think, how do I become resilient? And one of the first things I tell them, who is around you? Who do you have the most contact with on a daily basis? Who are the five people you have most contact with? Now, who do you hang out? Who are your friends? Who do you think? 
Who do you actually have contact with on a daily basis? You you become what you are around. Hmm. So if everybody around you is fear-based, then you become more fear-based. So going back to where I came from, the agency, the U.S. Secret Service, everybody was not fear-based. We understood fear. We knew it was there. There's no such thing as being fearless, but you managed and pushed through that fear. And so if everybody around you is, when things break bad, they can keep it together, guess what? You can keep it together. So it's your environment. The way you make a resilient mindset is you have to constantly, as an individual, assess the world around you. Who's around me? Who do I have contact with? If everybody is falling apart around you, you're going you're gonna to absorb that. No matter how, much, how strong you think your identity is or how resilient you think you are internally, you absorb the world around you. So it is on you as an individual to consistently assess who's around me, who's good for me, who's not good for me. Who should I have maybe put a buffer between myself and this other person? Maybe that they're very chaotic. Maybe they're, they're, um, they take too much. Um, they're, they, they have a negative mindset. You, you must be around what you want to become. Mm. And it is on you as an individual, it's on me to constantly assess my environment. And then not just the people around me, but the work I am doing, the thoughts that I am thinking, the exposure that I have, the projects that I do, my environment as well. All these things are so important because when you do all these little things, the outcome is powerful. It's like compounding interest. Right. And that's how you have to look at yourself. Everything around me is like compounding interest. So if I'm careful and thoughtful about all these little moving parts, I'm strong, I'm resilient, I'm a mover. Mm. If I'm not, then all these little things, they, be, they make little cuts in us, little, little cracks. Then eventually the little cracks get bigger and bigger. Yeah, I'd be, on that topic, I'd be curious, you know, that transition now that you made from being in the Secret Service to regular life, you know, going back to the normal life. And I would almost argue that what you're doing now with writing books and being in media and going on interviews, it's kind of the opposite, right? You were, you were, you kind of had to be the most private person possible in order to perform at the highest, you know, performance of your job, but you are kind of needing to learn how to do the opposite in order to perform and provide as much value as possible. So what are some of the things you've had to unlearn about your daily habits, about your mindset from that transition that you've had to make? So here's the thing. I didn't unlearn anything. I adapted. Mm. One of the things you want to learn is to adapt to your environment. So as you transition, I can't stay static. Sometimes people will say, well, this is just me. Take me or leave me. Good luck with that because you want to adapt to the environment you're in. So I can't bring that persona that I had there out into the world I am now. I work in the news now, so if something happens in the news, I become adaptable and I have to deal with the different personalities. Uh, what was it? Last week we were talking about the Michigan State University shooting, MSU, there was a shooting there. So I had to go on the news and discuss it. But I have to adapt to the producers, to the anchors, to the, the news space because they work in a different way. The a resilient person does not make the world adapt to them. You adapt to the world. You know how to move around it. So I didn't unlearn anything. I just took what I already had and I used it to adapt to the space I'm in. Now, on a personal note, it's still extremely important, and I still do this today. Who's around me? Who am I connecting with? Is this a, a person? I don't want to say person of value because we don't necessarily need somebody to give us something. 
but relationships should be healthy and balanced. I always look at it like uh, playing tennis. You know, when people come to me and say, you know, I have this difficult person in my environment, in my world, whether it's family, friend, or a, a colleague or boss, and you have to look at every person as, are we playing tennis? Meaning, I hit the ball, they hit the ball. I hit the ball, they hit the ball. But if you're dealing with someone who's always, it's one way, mm. there's an issue there. But that's on you as an individual to transition and to adapt and move. I think that's how you become triumphant. You don't stay one thing. If you stay one thing, and quite honestly, if you think you know everything, then you become obsolete. Yeah. The world is evolving. People are evolving. Cultures are evolving. Society is evolving. You must evolve and move with it. But bringing your healthy and strong habits, bringing your fortitude and your resilience. So it's almost like you're a, a chameleon no matter what situations that you've entered. And I guess that's just part of who you were already. And it's something that you've developed and really crafted working in the um, Secret Service Agency. I'm wondering, you know, what is that thin line of being able to adapt to whatever situation that you're in, but also having an identity that you're firm on? so that you can not lose your identity and that you can continue to be who you are with the, with the core of who you are without constantly changing because someone else is a certain way or because you know, you, you, you're around a certain environment and needing to completely change who you are. In some sense, I can get exhausting, I guess, for certain people where you don't, you're always like a different person every couple of months or every year. So while there's benefits, how do we balance that? Or do you think that's not, do you think like from part of being resilient is actually not staying a whole firm of your identity, but constantly needing to shed a part of us? No. So what you're talking about is authenticity. Hmm. And being authentic and being adaptable are two different things. Being authentic means being yourself, knowing who you are, knowing what your moral compass is, your values, your ethics, your beliefs. Your identity, your authenticity stays the same. Mm. The core of who you are should stay the same. You should not change who you are at the core. Adaptability is putting me in a situation and being able to adapt and move through that situation, not being rigid. So I can still, for example, let's take something super simplistic. I could do an interview with a terrorist or a terrorist sympathizer, which I had. So I can go sit down and I would happen, you know, on occasion, if I'd go overseas to the Middle East somewhere, I would sit down across from someone and who would say, I hate the U.S., I hate America, uh, you know, and they, they would profess that. Now, my goal there at that moment was to get information from that person. I needed to verify uh, an attack or verify weapons being moved. I needed to verify something. I was still my authentic self. Mm. It was still me, Evie, going there. But what I was able to do is I was able to accept the person in front of me, being someone who hated America, who hated what I represented, and adapt to that and that, okay, I hear you. But let's discuss what, you know, what we're here to discuss. I didn't try to impose my values and belief systems on that person. Well, you know what, America, we're the good guys. You've got it all wrong. Mm. That's, that's what I mean by adaptability. I can still stay me. But what a lot of people do think is I have to change how you think so that this can work. You don't. You still stay who you are, but you do not project your values and belief systems onto other people. It creates conflict. 
but it's at the end, it's what am I looking to achieve and how do I understand this person to lead, to lead people? You must understand them. Hmm. But if you only understand yourself and what you want and what your motives are, you can lead no one because everybody's uniquely different. That is what adaptability is. It is not sacrificing your authenticity or being genuine. Because even in those situations, I could still be genuine. I could still be authentic. Does that does that make sense, Sean? It does. Yeah. Talk to me more about that. I mean, you here are, again, like you are serving the U.S. and you're on a you know quite a frequent basis needing to interview and communicate, like build somewhat of a relationship, needing to interrogate or or have some sort of trust built in or get some sort of communication exchange with the person that probably has the opposite values, the opposite beliefs, the opposite, you know, uh, things that you guys believe in. And for most people, it's not going to be that right. Most people, maybe they'll have different political beliefs. Maybe you like ham, I like cheese, you know, it's just, but people still have such a divide. But I think you're uh, why then let me ask you a question. What does trust have to do that? Can you not have different belief systems, but still have trust between yourself and another person? I believe this, you believe this, but there's still trust. I Mm. know that when you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it. I know that when we work together, you will follow through. I know you will hear me out when we make decisions. This is where I think people get confused. I must make you think like me for this to work. Mm. That is not trust. Trust is allowing people to be who they authentically are, not trying to change them, but trying to work with what they are. Why must I change your belief system to accomplish something? So if my goal was to get information about an attack or resources or whatever, why do I need to change his perspective to see me as a good guy? It's like, you can see me how you want. I understand. And most often I would say, I would allow them to tell me, tell me why you feel like that. Tell me, explain to me where that's coming from. People want to be heard. But when we try to impose ourselves onto others, we're not building trust. I'm just trying to make you like me. It creates conflict. We get nothing done. Progress is the ability to move forward, but you can't move forward. And this goes in business. Listen to other people, allow, allow them to express what they want and see where you can meet them. And instead of focusing, I need to change you. I don't like you. What am I trying to achieve here? What is my outcome? Letting people be is a very powerful thing. And sometimes people get confused. And this is why most people aren't very good at resilience or adaptability because they cannot accept the truth of what it is, of of Mm. something. If you can accept what someone is as they are, then you can adapt. But most people struggle to move forward and make progress because they can't accept either a person or they can't accept the truth of something. Living in the truth, not reality, the truth. And it's not about being an optimist or a pessimist, it's about living in truth. What really is, and then how do I move around this? And when you're in those situations, when you're interrogating or interviewing terrorists with these different beliefs, what if they don't want to open up? You know, what, what are some of the tactics you've learned to help people open up that may have these differing beliefs or different values, uh, or just people that are not really going to be sharing information to you. I mean, it's not like they're dying to share all the secrets and information that is going to be serving you. So what are the things you've learned, whether it's body language or whether it's 
questions you might be asking that can help people feel more comfortable opening up about themselves? It actually goes back to what we're talking about. It's body language is fine. I mean, reading people's great. You get to see where they are and you can move and adapt based on, on that. If I see somebody closed off, it lets me know I have a lot of work to do with this person. There's no trust. But what you want to work on is called rapport. And everybody thinks they know what rapport is. Everybody thinks rapport is, hey, how are you? How's the dog? How's the cat? How's Brazil? What's the weather like? Okay, let's move on. That's not rapport. Rapport is something that you create and maintain throughout the conversation. Rapport is connection with another human being. Rapport is trust. Rapport is a mutual back and forth. So when we talked about playing tennis in a conversation, rapport is I speak, you speak. I speak, you speak. Both parties feel heard. That's rapport. I understand you. Understanding and, and agreeing are not the same thing. I could understand somebody who hated the United States. I didn't agree with it, but I could understand it. And I allowed that to be. So the way you build rapport and the way you gain trust with people, first is accepting a person as they are. That's the biggest obstacle for people. I can't accept you. Take politics. You have a different political belief. Okay, that's fine. But sometimes we, we, we sit and we argue that and what for? You become very rigid in your thoughts. Allow people to have their own thoughts. Now, mm. me sitting across from you and allowing you to express your thoughts and me not shutting you down, that builds trust. So when you know how to present yourself to people and treat people, that's how you build trust. You don't have to agree. So when I have someone who is, again, a very extreme situation, a terrorist sympathizer or a terrorist themselves, I allow them to speak. I don't shut them down. I don't tell them they're wrong. I don't cut them off when they speak. I don't correct them unless I need to. These are things everyday people do in conversation and then they wonder why their relationships suffer. This is how you begin to build rapport. You accept a person as they are and then you listen to them. What do they want? What's important to them? Not what's important to me. We're in a very me, me, me society. What do I need? What do I want? When you want to engage with people and you want to have productive outcome, even in business, especially in business, what does this person need from me? And the other thing you can do is, and I say, I say this a lot, master the art of shutting up. The majority of the time, you should let the other person speak. Why is this powerful? You get to learn what they want, their motives, their agenda. You get to assess them, read them, they feel heard. Everybody thinks falsely, if I do the majority of the talking, I control the conversation. It's wrong. It's the person who speaks the least who has the most power. Because when I do all the talking, I learn nothing about this person or my opponent. But my opponent learns everything about me. They got a good read on me and I've got nothing on them. So building rapport and trust, it's, it's a silent thing. That's how you do it. There's no trick. There's no sit like this, put your posture like that. Now look, posture plays a role to an extent in that when you're speaking to someone and you want to open the conversation, a strategy you can use is an open and welcoming posture. I'm open, I'm welcoming, my hands are out either on the table or outside. I'm not hiding them like this, I'm not sitting on them, I'm not closed off. I'm letting you know with my body, I'm here with you. We're connected, you're frontally aligned, you're looking at people. Eye contact is huge when it comes to building trust. Huge. Mm. Look at people, not just when you talk to them, but when they talk to you. Encourage them. Use encouragers like a slight head nod from time to time. But don't fake it. Be genuinely, genuinely curious about the other person. When you are, they feel your authenticity. And then that gets people to open up. That is how you do it. 
You want to connect with the human being across from you, not manipulate them and not trick them. So you, let's say you've learned the art of shutting up. You've, you've gotten your body language. You've, you've, you've optimized it. You fixed it up so that you can connect authentically to yourself. I would imagine the part of you know the 80-20 rule where you're 80% listening, 20% talking is asking great questions. And this is probably one of the most important skills that you've had to develop because you've had fixed amount of time. You knew that you had to ask the right questions to get the right answers. Once the report was built and building, what have you learned about asking questions that can help people open up more? Uh, obviously, like, and I guess certain, certain things are obvious, like not asking closed-minded uh, questions that can lead to just a yes or no without opening it up. Um, but is there anything else that you've, you've kind of learned throughout your experience? When you ask people a question, ask them something that lets them tell you a story. Think of it like that. I want you to tell me a story. And so when you let people tell you their story the way they want to tell you their story, it's an open-ended question, which is important, yes. Tell me what you're thinking. Describe to me what you want in a partnership. Explain to me why you're not happy with this project. When I lay it on you like that, I let you tell me a story, Sean. And then, Sean, I follow you on this journey. And as you're telling me the story, I'm hearing what matters to you, what's important to you, what you liked, what you didn't like. I'm not guiding it. And you know what's wonderful with this? I don't have to work so hard. <laughs> I don't have to guess what's going on in your head. It's less work. I'm letting you tell me something. So two things happen. One... The person feels heard, they feel heard, they connect with you, hence they, you build rapport, hence they trust you, right? Check. The other thing is, you don't have to work so hard. You don't have to guess, you don't have to surmise, or you don't say the wrong thing, which shuts people down, which can mm. happen. Because you listen to what they say, and then you jump in, and when we allow other people to speak, then we come in in a more thoughtful way, an intelligent way, and join the conversation. That's what you do. So if they start telling you what they like, you come in and say, oh, okay, and you start with, I, this is what I want in a project, or this is what I want in a partner. And mm. then you, you come in from that angle. If they say to you, this is something that happened to me in the past, I didn't like this, then you can engage them with empathy. Empathy is, that must have been very difficult. It sounds like that was a difficult time. Tell me about that. Adaptability is allowing people the ability to go on a journey and you being able to follow them and not being rigid in, this is my agenda, this is what we have to talk about. I need to check these boxes. Because you're not really listening, you're just checking your boxes. And that does not build rapport. Yeah, and I guess uh, from for, for you, as you progress to the level of expertise that you got, as you hear enough stories, I would imagine you hear certain patterns of maybe certain people in their lives that they describe or that they mention. Maybe it's a sister, maybe it's their dog, and you can... It, you know, you can distinguish their tones in terms of how excited they get for certain things when they talk about it. I guess there's like layers and layers and layers by being a great listener. If you know how to really analyze and, and see certain patterns about that person and you can direct that conversation to what the next level is, right? Is that kind of the... Look, um, strategy and skill set's important. But the most important thing is when you're quiet and you allow a person to speak, and you're present, you're not thinking about what you're going to say, what you're going to do, and you're really there, people will reveal themselves to you. You have to allow space for people to reveal themselves. But if you're talking too much, you're in it too much, you can't see it. This is why the 80-20 rule is great. I can sit back and I can watch you, I can listen. Most people want to feel heard. Even if you don't go along with what they say, as long as they feel heard, it's like customer service. When people are not happy with customer service, Sometimes they just want to complain. Let them complain. 
Let them go. Let them say what they're going to say. Don't cut them off. Don't correct them. Don't even tell them you're going to fix it. Let them go on that journey of expressing themselves. When they are done and then they are spent, now you can come in more intelligently. You've heard what they want to say. You can acknowledge their emotions. Most people just want to be acknowledged. You know, I'm sorry to hear that. It must have been very difficult. This is what we're going to do for you. You tell people that this is how I'm going to correct this and then you actually do it. So there's a journey or process. It's much more simplistic. But when we're so self-based, when we're so identity-based, and when everything we're being taught is, you know, your boundaries, you're this, and you, you tell people no, and you do this, and we put too much of that, and we think that that defines strength, and mm. it doesn't. Yeah, it's a very powerful... Sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. Strength is a quiet thing. Resilience, heroism, they're silent. You know, in the service, it was interesting because the louder somebody is, the weaker they actually are. The more somebody tries to appear tough, it's actually the opposite. It's the yeah. quiet person you got to be careful with. It's the person who's watching and listening. Those people mm. who are very loud and very in your face, you have to ask yourself, why is this person trying so hard? Why are they so loud and in my face? Why are they playing it so tough? Toughness, true toughness is internal. Yeah, and and that post effect of transitioning. I, I don't know if you were an extrovert growing up, and you became more of the the listener. I mean, I guess it's hard to say. Like a great listener could also be uh, an extrovert or an ambivert. But I guess I made that transition from being the person that was always talking, that was trying to control the conversation, into being more of the listener. And obviously, it's part of the job here uh, doing the podcast and the greatest benefit that I didn't even know could exist is that I realized when I was doing most of the talking, it was so much focusing on what other people thought about, about me and whether I said something wrong. And even during the, the, the stories that I would be telling or even after I would be thinking like, oh, did I say something wrong? Or it was all around what other people thought about me. And it was so unhealthy. And I realized that transition that you make when you become a great listener is you're always thinking about what the other person is thinking, right? That there's, there's the transition that goes from me to, to, to them. And, um, it's also just a very healthy way. I feel when you're not so much focusing on yourself and worrying about what other people think about you, but more about what the other person is feeling and you can build that genuine relationship because hopefully the other person can feel that as well, even if, um, uh, you're not saying anything. You know, it's, it's a really great thing that you're bringing up because there's a difference between you bringing on a guest and them feeling be, that you're interviewing them or them feeling that you're really authentically connecting with them. Those are two different things and they look different. So if somebody feels like, okay, this is another interview, they give you their spiel, they move on. But if you're able to authentically connect to them, you build rapport, they trust you, and guess what? They on their own, reveal more to you. You do less work. You listen. And it's something very powerful that you said. You don't want to make it about you. A lot of times we make things so much about ourselves. Me, me, me. And it's what's important here. You have a guest. You want them to open up and talk. You want to get unique information that you can share with everybody out there. So is it really about you? It's not. It's about them. And it's about your audience. When we take that focus off of ourselves, what do I sound like? What do I look like? What am I this? What am I that? I'm not saying not to manage those things. 
They're important. Your presentation is, but take all that energy and put it on, what am I delivering? Are my listeners going to like this? Is this person opening up? That's where their energy should go. Right, for the purposes of what we're talking about. But when we're too self-focused, or even when I present and I do public speaking quite a bit or work with organizations, or even when I do the news, I can't think about me, 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 me. And then it becomes about me. It's like, what do my viewers want? What do my listeners want? Am I delivering what they need? The energy changes, my focus changes, and now I do a better job of connecting and delivering versus somebody feeling like, oh, they're just interviewing me. They're not really there. They're just asking Mm. their their checklist of questions. And and beyond questions, uh, and we we can... You know, we can talk deeper about this. I'm sure there's so many layers to this, but I do want to focus on reading people because once you become a great listener, a lot of it is really trying to understand how the person is reacting, whether it's their body language, whether it's certain reaction, maybe their voice of tone changes. Um, for, for you, I guess, just to just as a precursor to that, that transition that you've made from secret service agency to being out in the regular world and being in media and being in the spotlight and just speaking with regular people, I understand that like being in a secret service agency, I would imagine the predisposition is to not trust people and to be suspicious for the right reasons, right? Because the consequences of that was so vile. Was that something that you had to adapt to? And was that, is that something that's still a little bit difficult as you navigate normal life and go into business meetings and negotiations and how would you, I guess, advise for people that have similar um, tendencies to, to uh, have difficulty in trust people, if so that's the case? What you're people. talking about is correct, actually. Research shows that people in law enforcement or those types of positions tend to be more cynical. Hmm. And the reason is because when you're in these positions, you're dealing with people when they're at their worst. You're not dealing with the best of humanity. You're dealing with people who are committing crimes who want to hurt somebody, they want to hurt someone you're protecting, they're lying to you to sneak in, get in. That's what you're typically dealing with. You're dealing with the worst of humanity. And so if that's what you see day in and day out, yes, you may tend to think this is what the the world is. So actually, the research shows us that most law enforcement individuals tend to see people in more cynical ways. But to be fair to those in in that industry, you are dealing with people at their worst. People lie to law enforcement or deceive all the time. So that is what you're exposed to. Now, but you have to have a balance. So I'm obviously very well aware I'm not in that world anymore. So when I'm in this world, which is a different space, I have to be very mindful that I don't deviate into that cynicism, right? I have to have mm. that awareness of any intrinsic bias I may have. I may have. So because I'm aware of that, I'm much more thoughtful with people. So I look at, listen to people, what do you want? How can I be of service to you? And look, are you going to get deviant people from time to time, even in the normal world? You absolutely are. There's no, you can't be naive to that. Sometimes, you know, I'll hear people say, oh, humanity and the goodness, and that's wonderful. Not everybody is like that. So it is also your responsibility as an individual not to be naive to the maladaptive people that will come into your life from time to time, or maladaptive behavior, rather. Because some people can do bad things and be great to one person and completely annihilate somebody else. Hmm. So you must have that awareness as an individual. You can't have that naiveness. No, everyone's great. It's not correct. It's not true. And then 
that's where you on your own, then you begin to fall victim to people manipulating you. Again, if you project onto other people, well, I wouldn't do this, so they wouldn't. And that's where you often hear that dialogue. I can't believe they're doing this. I would never do such of a thing. You're thinking in the wrong way. You're thinking what you would never do. If we go back to what you and I were speaking about earlier, it's adapting. No, what do, what would they do? Who, what are they about? What is What are their values and belief systems? When you can see that clearly, then you don't get blindsided. But if it's all about you, then you're going to get blindsided because you mm. see the world the way you are. And what the goal here is stay authentic, be who you are, but you must learn to see the world as other people see it when it comes to your engagement, whether it's in any relationship or in business. What's this person about? What do they need? What drives them? What are their motives? What, how much trust can I give them and how much trust should I hold back? What, what are the things you've learned in, on that topic of, of, you know, on the topic of reading people and knowing whether someone is being truthful or not? You know, what have you learned about those connections or those conversations in order to read people, whether they are being truthful or not, whether they are lying? That's that's a heavy that's a heavy question. It's a, it's a lot. I think the best thing I can tell people is we often feel intuitively when people are being truthful and not being truthful. Sometimes, and it would be very false of me to say, look, every time somebody looks away when they speak to you. They're lying. It's nonsense. The best thing you can do is when you don't speak and you allow a person to be themselves, you can assess them in their normal normal state, so to speak. So when they're not heightened, they're not threatened, how are you? How are you doing? What was your driving like? Asking people questions that don't really cause any type of reaction. Mm. You'll get a, a really good baseline on that person of who they are when they're not heightened or stressed. Then when you move into a difficult conversation or you're asking things where you think they might be there might be a, a shift or they might be deceitful or maybe you don't see it coming. You look for a shift in their behavior and their baseline. Oh, that's interesting. The whole time I'm speaking with Evie, she's using her hands. She's using, these are called illustrators when she's telling me stuff. And then when I asked Evie, hey, Evie, what did you do last night? Her hands go down. They disappear. She actually sits on them, which is something she didn't do before. I asked that question and it prompted a change in her behavior. Ding, red flag. You just pay attention to it. That is really how you assess behavior. And it could be about anything. It could be they're normally in a monotone voice, but all of a sudden they get really excited or they exaggerate what they're saying. Or, or... it could be the flip side. Somebody mm. could be monotone, they get excited, or they can be excited, then go monotone. Everyone's different. And so that's why a lot of times when I see the marketing of a read body language and everybody does this, all liars do this, it's false. It's not true. And what we're not teaching people is pay attention to the other person. A lot of people, when they speak, they break eye contact all the time. They're nervous, they're shy, they're uncomfortable, they're introverts. Right. It's a habit. It could be a thousand different things. But if when I'm speaking to you, Sean, the whole time you're breaking eye contact, and then when I ask you, hey, Sean, how many interviews have you done? And all of a sudden you lock eyes with me. You're like looking. <laughs> yeah. Right? I'm going to say that's different. Maybe he mm. hasn't done as many as he told me he did. I'm not saying you haven't. I'm just using it as yeah, an example. Yeah. You'll catch that. It's kind of like, hmm, that's different. It's about being curious about people. Be curious, kind of master the art of silence and being quiet. People will give you information if you just be still enough to allow it to come in. It's self-mastery and self-discipline. Those are the keys. 
Are there any verbal cues? We, we talked a lot about, you know, maybe differences in terms of the conversations, but are there any like commonly known verbal cues that most people, not everyone, yeah, to, to kind of lead people yeah. to think that most of the time are probably BS or lies? Sometimes, sometimes. Again, I want to be very careful because I don't right. want to say every time somebody does this, it means this. Because I want you to think about how diverse we are, how uniquely different we are. So we're not all going to behave the same way. You've got your DNA, your biological makeup that makes you a certain way, combined with your upbringing, your environment, your experiences, who your parents were, sure. your education, all those things. It all plays a role into the person you become. So that's why you can't oversimplify behavior. Each person is unique and they take the world indifferently. Yeah. However, some things that tend to run, that we tend to see in people who do, who are deceptive is, are when people lie, they lie, their lie sounds like a story. It's got a beginning, middle, and an end. Because liars think, I need to tell you a story for it to make sense. Truthful people, when people tell the truth, their truth will be a little bit more disjointed. It won't be a beginning, middle, and end. So if something sounds like a story, it probably is a little bit of a story. And some mm -hmm. people also, they will lie, but they'll, they'll, they'll tell you a little bit of truth, right? So 10% of what they're telling you is truth. It's seed of truth. But then they exaggerate, they mold, they change, they shift, they add, they subtract. Now it's a lie. And so this is where a lot of people get comfortable or they think to themselves, well, I am telling the truth. Yes, but you've manipulated the truth so much that it's no longer the truth. But people sell it to themselves that way. And that's how people sometimes are able to tell you something and be believable. So you have to learn to be able to decipher what's true and what they said and what's not. Also, gaps of time tend to be a, a big significant thing. Where someone's telling your story and you've got detail, then all of a sudden there's a gap of time or they start to become vague. That's an indication, a red flag. There's a big gap in time here. What's missed? And that is actually the number one way people like to lie. They leave mm. it out because no, but most people don't like to lie. We don't like to be liars. So we just leave this out. But what happens is because you left this out of the story, it changes the context of everything. That's interesting. Is that part of the reason why you mentioned one of the great questions you can ask is to lead people into a story because there's patterns that you can recognize or yes, how do we balance looking, that? Yeah. No, you're looking for their patterns, but to get their patterns and just understand them better, you want to sit back and look. So, and you don't want to lead people. If I leading someone means you want them to answer a certain way, you want to be careful. So, so for example, it, Instead of saying to somebody, hey, was the car red or brown? What would be a better way to ask that? Do you think if it were open-ended? I guess describe what the car looks like. What, you know, yeah. Even better. Instead of saying car because we're assuming it's a car, what if it's a minivan, right? right? Mm. Describe the vehicle to me. Boom. Now they're going to be like, oh, it was a minivan. Oh, no, it was a truck. It was red, but the door was hit. So they replaced it and it was yellow and the windshield was cracked, right? Versus, was the car red or black? Very different. That's what that means. Let them tell you because you don't know what they're going to tell you and you're going to get more information that way. But people won't give you stuff unless they trust you, unless you build rapport. Right, right. And assuming we've taken those principles that you mentioned and we can spot someone that may not be as truthful, what is the good, what is the, uh, an ideal way to confront someone without, you know, breaking that relationship or without breaking that cover. Like you probably have interviewed, 
you know, thousands of people where you've had to master the art of shutting up and you weren't jumping in and calling them a liar. You know, it's, you had to, I guess, navigate in a way that continues to build a rapport without confronting them directly. What are some of the best uh, strategies that you've learned to, I guess, navigate that situation? So I think here, Sean, it's important to to establish that there's a difference. Me interviewing somebody in a room for a period of time and then cutting ties with them or not seeing them again is different. Mm. You having a relationship with someone who does lie to you, that's different. And so we're talking about two different things. You do, first, you don't want to call out a liar, and I typically wouldn't. But if you do have someone who consistently lies to you, now that comes back on you. You have to decide, I have somebody consistently lies to me. Is this worth having this person in my life or not? And you have to be able, when you make that choice, to keep somebody around knowing that they're dishonest with you, what those consequences are, whether you confront them or not. Sometimes people lie from time to time and maybe they're afraid, maybe there's no malice there. Okay, but even if there is no malice, if somebody's consistently not telling you the truth, you must have the sensibility to decide, well, then why am I keeping this person around? So I just want to caveat that because they're two different things. I can sit and be lied to to my face if it's an interrogation or in an interview or even now working in media, it's fine. But if it's a personal relationship, a business relationship, that's a different, there's different stakes there. And there's a different exposure to that that can be very unhealthy for you. That will kill your confidence, your self-esteem, your resilience. Mm -hmm. So typically you don't want to confront a liar or say to somebody you're not they're lying to you it's gonna they're gonna get defensive right away but what you can say is you know I feel like you're not telling me the truth or I feel like something's missing I feel like you're not telling me the whole story something's missing here I'm saying the same thing but I'm, I'm, I'm being mindful of the words I use because when you call somebody a liar even if they are lying to you it's automatically going to make them defensive and shut them down right, right. but at the same time you can manage that but my question to you is why would you want that person connected to you, mm. right? Yeah, Those are things to think about as you're moving through the world. Yes. Speaking of moving through the world, uh, I want to leave this final question to you. As you have um, had different chapters in your life, and I would love to know what are some of the core life principles or lessons that you've ingrained into yourself that you've learned that's really helped you in the world that you're in now as a uh, partner, as a, as a friend, as a, as a businesswoman that you've learned in the, you know, your, your, your role as a secret service agent that is applicable to you now and uh, what people can learn from. Hmm. There's a lot of ways I can answer it. I think one of the most important things is Focusing on the present, on the future, a lot of people get caught up with bad things that happen to them and they become obsessed with the past and analyzing the past and figuring it out and why did this happen and why and how. And we have to be careful because you can get stuck in the past and it can sink you. So allowing things to be and not making something that was difficult, your identity. 
it's kind of like saying, coming to me and saying, Evie, I bought this brand new Maserati. I want to drive this thing really fast, but I can't get it to go above 50. And well, how are you going to get it to go above 50 when you've got this big U-Haul attached to it with all this baggage and stuff that you're bringing with you? It can't. Mm. Allow things, acknowledge things, allow things to be, but sometimes assessing and analyzing and overthinking, they're killers. Accept, adapt, and move forward. That's true progress. Sometimes things are just what they are, and it's okay. I think that's helped. My ability to acknowledge, like, this was bad, but it's okay. I learned. Maybe I didn't learn, but I learned moving forward. And having the ability to be a forward thinker. You know, Nike, the Nike word Nike, and I'm not sure if you know, do you, do you know what Nike means or where it comes from, the word Nike? No, I don't. Nike comes from the Greek word, which means Niki, which means to be triumphant, to be mm. victorious. And what's their slogan? Just do it. Just do it. Just move on. Mm. Just go. Very powerful. Evie, uh, such an insightful and entertaining conversation. I'd love to know uh, where people can learn more about you. Where can we direct people to? Obviously, we talked about a lot of stuff, but you've got a book yourself that I'm sure people will want to dig deeper into that talks much deeper about some of the stuff that we've just scratched on the surface. Um, where, it, where can we direct people to, to learn more about you? Sure. So the book is called Becoming Bulletproof. Read people, influence situations, um, protect yourself, live fearlessly. So that's you can find that on Amazon or anywhere audible as well. You can listen to it. And then on social media, uh, just put in every Pompers, drop me into Google, E-V-Y, and then Pompers, my last name, and my social will come up, my website will come up, and people can reach out and connect anytime. Beautiful. Yeah, well, we'll definitely have those links below so people can check that out. Evie, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Sean.